0: most people would go up to the point of lethal shock on somebody that they've never met. And so you better believe that people at the WEF or the status quo, the powers that be in the world, they understand that level of of human conformity. They understand that people will do atrocious things to other people because of this banality of evil. Right. A guy in a lab coat told me that it's okay. It's my job to do it therefore I'll do it. It's just my social job. they, They were maybe getting paid a little bit of money to come in for this experiment. It wasn't their career or it wasn't their passion in life or anything like that. They didn't work all their life to get to this moment to do that. No, it was just, I came in on a Tuesday afternoon and I was told to shock somebody. So I did it. That's a pretty disturbing reality. And it only happened because there was no face or name to go with the person on the other side of
1: the wall. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the collection of money. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values, which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, Again, that's Wolf, WolfNYC, dot com. Brian Dement, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Hey, Robert. How's it going, man? Good, man. It's great to have you here. Um, been talking about this for a while and excited to have this conversation. I think we're going to talk about some interesting topics. Uh, just by way of quick introduction, you are the head of marketing for the Orange Pill app, and you're also the author of the book, Bitcoin evangelism. Uh, And today, I think we're going to focus this episode on a very interesting area, which is the interplay between social movements and technology, how each influences the other, Uh, looking at a few historical examples. And then we'll go into how Bitcoin is one of these, uh, one such phenomenon, right? Where technology and social seem to be very mutually influential. Um, before we jump into that, though, I think it'd be very useful for my audience just to have a little bit of background on you, who you are and what your path was into Bitcoin. Yeah, thanks, man.
0: Well, first off, I got to say, sitting here face to face with you is, is kind of nerve wracking because not because of your awesome show that I, that I love to watch and all that kind of stuff. It's because a few weeks ago, I called you out to fight you at the main event of Pacific Bitcoin as a joke. And then I had people DMing me. They're like, "You know, Robert would kill you, right?" And I said, "Yeah, I understand that. It was a joke." And, and and so I was like, "I should probably DM Robert and let him know that I'm I'm totally just kidding that it was a joke from this guy Tatum Turnup." So I have no intention of calling out Robert. I've seen the man in in real life. Uh, he's a monster. I've seen him boxing on uh, online. I don't want any piece of that. So,
1: so well, well, or to clear the so, air on that, I want to clear the air too because if it was jujitsu, which I think was the, the recommended forum. I I've done one day now I've had one day of jujitsu training and I think you've been doing it for like 10 years. I think you told me something. Yeah. Something like that. But I think you'd probably get me.
0: I would assume. Maybe, maybe, but uh, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't want you to freak out and just start, start throwing those hammer fists. I think that'd be a problem. So (laughs) anyways, yeah, us jujitsu guys are known for our hands. Um, but, uh, Anyways, man, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on here. But yeah, man, my, my Orange Peel story is pretty pretty simple. Um, 2013, first time I heard about Bitcoin, uh, I'd started a business uh, when I was 22, a few years before that. And some of the guys that had mentored me as an entrepreneur had gotten into Bitcoin. And they didn't really know why. They just thought it was interesting or speculative or whatever. And I remember kind of being disappointed with those guys that you guys are really smart. Why are you buying into this dumb magic internet money stuff? Mm-hmm. And uh, I came at it as a skeptic and I started studying Bitcoin because I wanted to kind of show them that it was all the things that everybody says at first. It was a pyramid scheme. It was a Ponzi scheme, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And guess what happens when you question truth? If you ask honest questions about truth, either it breaks or you ba- break, but truth doesn't break. So you're going to break. So uh, I became a believer. Um, and I, I study Bitcoin every day still you know almost 10 years later because it's a bottomless rabbit hole um you find more analogies in life you find more ways that it applies well, there's new frontiers that are being created so that was that was my orange pill story it was I was coming at it like a skeptic that's exactly how I I became a religious Christian I was an atheist mm-hmm. who decided like I want to disprove my Christian friends and so the study of apologetics was what led me to faith um i think that many bitcoiners that way we were skeptical of what we're told and we we initially go the other way which makes us skeptics of bitcoin like i right. think i respect most bitcoiners because they were initially skeptical of bitcoin and then we get to this point where we're the biggest proponents of it because we went the hard route we didn't just buy cuz number go- i mean a lot of us bought number go up and that that was part of the interest at the beginning but we were also questioning it, questioning it too. And so that's why we become such champions because we didn't only buy it because of number go up. We bought it because we, we, were, we were won over by its tenants. Um, and that's why we take the time to read books and talk on shows and listen to podcasts. We could be listening to anything else other than this, but we choose this because we've seen the profound nature of truth play out in our lives.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, it reminds me of that Musashi quote. He says something like, the truth is what it is, and you either bend to its power or you live a lie, basically. Mm. And I think most people obviously, number go up draws you in. That's, I think, that's true almost universally. There's very few people that weren't attracted to Bitcoin's price movements, at least initially. But then it's the, you know, do you apply the proof of work necessary to start to understand Bitcoin? or not, right? That's kind of a fork in the road for a lot of people. Some do, and many don't. But everyone that does, right? Everyone that studies Bitcoin, and this is why we always advocate for study Bitcoin or study the nature of money, it seems like a one-way street. Like I don't see anyone coming back out of the Bitcoin rabbit hole. It's like you just kind of fall down and down and down. And eventually it becomes a lifestyle, like you're saying, right? Where it starts to change how you are in the world. I think these These attributes we associate with Bitcoin, like proof of work and radical honesty, self-responsibility, it just becomes part of your life. It actually, in my, like, seeing people in Bitcoin, like, they become better, basically. Um, So it's really interesting, right? We're talking about, again, which is thematic with this episode, it's just a technology, it's just a tool, yet somehow it's changing the way you behave in the world and changing, therefore, your, your social activities as well. Um so again that's going to be the the thrust of this episode is looking at that interplay between technology and social movements or individual behavioral change let's say and we said we we're going to start with the protestant reformation as a good example of this um you know we had the the church the catholic church the medieval church for a long time had this monopoly on knowledge they controlled all book production. Books were luxury items, very expensive to produce, and because of that technological reality, a lot of people were illiterate. All right. a lot of people didn't have, couldn't write. Um, they couldn't, therefore, they couldn't read. They couldn't read the Bible, and they had this intermediated relationship with the Word of God through the church, basically. But the printing press, which made books a lot cheaper, a lot more plentiful. Um, actually contributed to people becoming more literate and then having a more disintermediated or direct relationship with the word of God. And that really, really changed the world. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I think you made the point offline that, you know, Martin Luther could have written his 95 theses and pinned it on the door of the Catholic church, but that idea might not have spread as as readily had the, the printing press not been invented.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely the case. I, I'm sure there was probably people that questioned the Catholic Church prior to that time. We just don't know who they were because nothing came of it. Um and there was this there was this infrastructure that was finally in place that allowed that thing to spread. Um that's what we see at every kind of historical poignant time of history where where change happens. It's there was a will for it to happen. And then there was some kind of mechanical device, whether it was technology or whatever it was, that helped it, helped it spread. But then that third component was there was people that that caught it, right? So it was the will of the people that wanted it, but they didn't know what they needed. And then somebody said, "Okay, this is this is I'm putting a I'm putting a label to what you guys are sensing." And then the people take it back and then run with it. Um, you know, church went from you went into the the cathedral or you went into the big Catholic church and you did corporate worship, which is still done to this day. But the Reformation brought about the the existence of the the little church or the home church again, which that's how the church started 2,000 years before, 1,500 years before. Um, But over time, dogma, tradition, money, wealth, power centralized, and you were able to build these beautiful establishments, which were awe-inspiring. I mean, you go and look at cathedral, they're they're these beautiful things. So that's not not necessarily a bad thing, but it just concentrated power, um, not just on um, literacy and those types of things, which were really important. But for the genuine Christian, it was it was like a monopoly on on access to God. I mean, you think about how powerful of a monopolization that was. These people would fight and die for the right to connect with God. And yet there was a there was a pope or there was a priest or there was a bishop that was in between them and their ability to worship or even read God's word. And so now they could read it for the first time ever, and they could ask questions for the first time ever. They could start to teach it to one another, and that's where that social element comes in. We can ha- now have a little church in our home, um, and we can reach our little local community because we're able to teach this to one another and read this to one another. And it was it was one of the biggest olive branches from, from, from one, uh, one language group to another. When Martin Luther, he also translated it into German. That was the first time that the German language was able to read pretty much anything from the outside world. Um, It was because the Bible was then translated into German. And and you see, Germany became a very uh, Christian area for for a very long time because of that influence and because of that technological upgrade that that part of the world got.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating how you need, it's not enough to have good ideas, right? There has to be some mechanism for improving the liquidity of those ideas, right? And the the printing press was a great example of that. Just, again, we create a tool that makes books cheaper, and then all of a sudden people become more, everyone gets a software update, right? Like a cognitive software update, in this case, literacy. And then that, that calls into question the validity or the relevance of an existing institution like the medieval church, and then what indeed sort of leads to its decline as the dominant institution, and makes the way for the nation state to to fill the gap. And I, I'm reminded here too, I can't remember the title of this book, it's Will Durant, he's a really prolific author. And they have a book, oh, the, the title escapes me, but it's a 100 page book, and it's like a summary of human history in 100 pages. And one of the core things, uh, core messages of that book is that this pattern of centralization and then decentralization has occurred and reoccurred throughout human history. They called it the systole and diastole, like the heartbeat, basically, of human history is that we, we centralize for a while and then things get so uh, corrupt, really. I mean, so, so much wealth and power and influence concentrated in one place, and then there's some technological change, and then power and wealth re-decentralizes as a result. And it certainly seems like we're at one of those crossroads today um, under the paradigm of the nation state. But this was essentially, I mean, the the printing press enabled this rebellion right against the dogma or the tyranny of the Catholic Church. And I guess to use Bitcoin speak, maybe this is kind of like a hard fork of Christianity, that it's split into the top-down medieval church and the bottom-up Protestant Reformation. I mean, I think that's, I think that's the best way to to explain it. Um,
0: And it kind of harkens back to the R. R. Buckminster Fuller quote about uh, you never change the existing system by tearing it down or fighting against it. You change the existing system by building a parallel system that's better. And then people naturally gravitate towards that. Um, You know, nobody, Martin Luther didn't make anybody become a Protestant. He essentially created a new vein here's another option here's another we call it a free market option for religion that existed now and people will gravitate towards that and uh again the, it's not that this none of this proves whether catholicism or protestantism is the right avenue um it just proves that when you give people options and when there's you know even if see, even if catholicism is is the correct version of christianity or they have a better theology or whatever it happens to be there's no doubt that they were, like you said, they were a very centralized institution. And so there comes corruption with it. And I think even my Catholic friends would acknowledge that. They say, yeah, there's errors of the Catholic church that are corrupted errors of the Catholic church. And then there's less corrupted errors because of that heartbeat that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't seem to really be in question. Um, What what seems to be in question is is just how powerful this tool of the printing press, which led to change, social change, the way people live their lives changed because of this one device and most people's lives changed in a real tangible way that ha- they, they, they didn't those particular people might not have read more books those particular people might not have done anything different but their society their town benefited because of more robust more available information you know things of how to treat disease or to treat a broken leg or to cook or prepare food was now known because somebody in their village read a book somewhere and they gained this knowledge and there's all sorts of tangential effects within that society because of that one thing um Mm -hmm. and so yeah i mean there's there's just all sorts of positive effects that go beyond it's like how do you how do you quantify uh how many people's lives were affected it it literally is everybody on the planet their life was affected whether they read or not still even to this day big large portion portions of the population are illiterate but everybody's life has changed because of that invention
1: Yeah, it's it's a good point. And then I think it's a good, it's an accurate reframing of what we are in a way too, that we, we're all just sort of carriers of these ideas, right? No matter, we all have to have some ideology or philosophy kind of fueling our action. And when you swap out that software, right, it changes the way people act in the world. Um, And I, you know, you've seen, I've seen micro examples of this in my own life, right? Just getting into Bitcoin, or as you said, getting into Christianity, like it changes the way you are, right? All of a sudden you swap out your operating system, your moral operating system, or your intellectual operating system, whatever it may be. And it, it has very real consequences for how you carry yourself in the world. And then obviously how you carry yourself influences how others around you carry themselves. And so it has this very viral effect, right? That, just a simple change in the technology can actually have this profound change in uh, just general patterns of of human behavior. And I I guess one other thing to mention here, the subversive nature of this, Um, the printing press, initially the church kind of wrote it off, right? Just like nation states write off Bitcoin today, It's it's just this insignificant little toy or whatever, magic internet money, et cetera. But eventually the church realized, oh man, this is actually disruptive to our monopoly on knowledge. This is a problem. We need to try to squash the printing press. And then what happened? Well, you try to censor the printing press, or or, or you know destroy printing presses. They were physically destroying them. And then this uh, this actually incited people or induced people to use the printing press to produce books on how to produce printing presses. So it's like as you tried to squash the idea, you actually accelerated its proliferation. And, uh, you know, I think there's an analogy there for what cryptography does to the nation state, right? Like the more nation states try to censor our communications or social media, et cetera, that we're just going to see cryptography advance and be put to its highest and most subversive use. Mm-hmm. And, um, it just speaks to that idea that, uh, what did Victor Hugo say? He said there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard to put the genie back in the bottle once these things are out. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And you think about it too, we keep talking about how the Catholic church had a monopoly on God's word as far as people's ability to hear it. They also had a monopoly on the industry too of, of, of creating Bibles, right? There was still a need for, for every church to have a Bible. And so they owned the industry, like monasteries existed to have scribes that would handwrite each copy of it. So they owned that industry. And so the printing press, they could have looked around corners and they could have used it which they eventually did they eventually adopted that technology and the bible has gone on to sell more books than any any other book in history the catholic church could have gotten a big cut of that action had they been the first ones to adopt the printing press and and said oh this is the way of the future this is how we're now going to we're going to transform our business model but they said no we have too many employees that we can't we can't you know fire them or they you know they need to have some sort of role in the church so we need them to sit and write this thing by hand so they intentionally tried to keep a slower less efficient version of commerce for to keep their you know that that part of their industry going um and it just got outpaced by people that were you know bootlegging the bible on the side um i was just looking up one of the stats that I included in my book uh prior to the look, martin luther's 95 theses in all of europe there was only about 9000 or less books total in the entire in the entire continent of Europe less than 9 thousand books like imagine that your bookshelf probably has 9 thousand books on it right mm-hmm. after the printing press 50 years only 50 years after the invention of the printing press there was nine million books in in Europe and so it's three orders of magnitude in less than a generation that's the kind of seismic change you see um, when people are rigid about you know calling the new technology, the the technology of heretics and of and of people that are you know the farcical you know and so uh yeah bitcoin stands to at least be three orders of magnitude greater than what was before i think we all agree it's probably much much bigger than that um but within a generation i I suspect that bitcoin will be three orders of magnitude better than the next best thing
1: yeah it's Uh, there's a le- lesson in there too right like you said had the church embraced the printing press they could have had a they could have adapted the monopoly to the new technological paradigm and benefited tremendously but like many monopolies when you study these things historically they're resistant to do that because they have all this investment in legacy infrastructure technique whatever it may be um and so typically they they miss the proverbial boat right this thing the cat c- kind of gets out of the bag and the monopoly gets disrupted I'm reading this book on Rockefeller right now, and this was one of his defining characteristics that made him so successful, is he was always adapting his monopoly, right? like He would have a monopoly on, I think they were transporting oil initially in barrels, but barrels had all these problems, right? They leak, they break- By train car, right? Yeah. Yeah, so then he embraced train car and out-competed a lot of the guys that wouldn't let go of the barrel paradigm, and then eventually pipelines started to become- Come to play, and they were more efficient than train cars. So he was quick to embrace pipelines. So he was constantly adapting the monopoly. This is like the danger of the monopoly is that it ossifies mm-hmm. and and fails to adapt, and that's what leads to its failure. But you know, I guess the lesson for nation states there is the earlier you embrace Bitcoin, the better, right? If you try to resist this thing, I mean, you're just going to go the way of of monopolies that won't let go of an old paradigm. So. Mm-hmm. Well, in Rockefeller, one of the other things that made him brilliant was not
0: just adapting his, his monopoly, but but finding every last reason to use the resources he's been given. Right, so when he was making kerosene, it had this petroleum offshoot, and so what do you do with this petroleum byproduct? Well, you all of a sudden cars come along, and you're like, wow, I can use this as fuel. Like my kerosene, my kerosene monopoly doesn't even matter anymore. Like I can produce this, but then. That when we create petroleum, it creates this goo, like this goo. How do we we gotta spend all this money to get rid of this goo, this petroleum jelly that comes off of it? And he's like, Well, what can we use petroleum jelly for? And you you create all these different byproducts and offshoots and stuff. It's it's kind of now we don't want to say Bitcoiners are like Rockefeller, because I think many Bitcoiners are skeptical of Rockefeller, Mm -hmm. but he's an interesting guy. Bitcoiners kind of do the same thing. Like we have these Bitcoin miners that use all this energy and they have this byproduct it's heat it's this nuisance or whatever but i was just listening to simply bitcoin this morning they have these guys that are talking about heating your homes with bitcoin miners and it pays for your electricity bill and it's like bitcoin has because we're, we're trained to look at the ways to create efficiencies bitcoin i have so much confidence in it because bitcoiners are finding ways to adapt that monopoly that's why rockefeller had multiple generations of wealth when most people don't transfer wealth past a generation they passed multiple generations because of this ability to pivot and to stay ahead of the curve. And that's where you see the differences between technologies that took over and thrived. There's there's the technological advantage, but then there's the social component of the people that took it and run with it. Mm-hmm. If the people in that social layer are creative and they find ways to use the excess or to pivot and to tailor it to the new, the new paradigm, then they have the head start in the next leg of the race um, where everybody
1: else is starting from ground zero. Yeah, turning waste into revenue streams, right? Like, uh, clearly, very advantageous from an economic perspective. I've actually had some Bitcoin beef jerky too. They're using the heat off those miners to make beef jerky. It was, it was really no way. Wow, that's amazing. Um. Okay, so yeah, that I mean, this is a great little vignette. I think that you had this top-down authority. The authority was premised on a certain technological reality, right? No printing press, right? They, they had a monopoly on this, I think they called it the scriptorium, where they had people hand-copying books, right? And it was very labor-intensive, prone to error, slow. And along comes this very simple invention. The other thing interesting about the printing press is that it was not necessarily a, a novel invention. It was the guy, Gutenberg, pulled together a few existing technologies. And he made this amalgam called the printing press, right? I forget the exact ones, but the technology, all the ingredients existed. He was just the guy that put them together in the right way. And that's exactly what Satoshi did, right? He grabbed these different ingredients that prior cryptographers had created and he put them together in the right way to create Bitcoin. Um, So just sort of speaks to that. It's not like one lone. We have this romantic notion of one lone inventor, just like having the light bulb over his head and creating the thing. But it's really this process of trial and error, and someone finally makes the breakthrough where other mm-hmm. people have, have tried to forge the path. Um, and all that leads to that, again, that we had this centralization into the medieval church, and then one simple technological advancement, and then boom, massive decentralization. And then this upgrade, you know, both the human cognition in the form of literacy, numeracy, direct relationship with God, and that seeds, you know, like the, that seeds the scientific era really, right? You get more people that are more intelligent, more capable of distributed problem solving. And here we are, right? We're in a brand new paradigm as a result of something that might just be kind of written off as just, just a a minor invention. Um, okay. If we, if we go anything else on that before we move to the, uh, the next example, no? I mean, I think that that, yeah, I think that fleshes it out pretty well. Okay. You're also talking about, uh, we had slavery in the American South and the pre-Civil War era and the abolition of slavery. Um, a lot of, well, I guess this was largely driven by a Christian ethos initially. So that probably, there's a connection there maybe to The protestant reformation right like had those ideas been that widespread had we not had the protestant reformation such that we could have people that were buying into the abolition of slavery something human humanity's had since the dawn of time right this in america we get very focused on slavery in the american south as if that was the one episode of it but the reality is it's been the norm right across all human history and one of the uh most effective tools in the abolition of slavery was the underground railroad right people moving signaling at night to one another moving people under cover of darkness uh just a decentralized network of of people free people contributing to the the freeing of slaves right moving them into the north and into canada so what is the what's the relationship there between this decentralized network and the liberation of, of human beings. Well, what, one thread back to what we were just talking about, like you mentioned, is there's, there's this
0: Christian ethos, but then there's also the fact that most of, there there's very few slaves that were literate. The slaves that were literate were literate because their masters allowed them to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were literally t- only taught to read the Bible because there was a There was kind of a a sense in the, even in the South that yes, these people are your property, but at the end of the day, if you're a good Christian, you will still share the gospel with them and you will allow them to read the Bible. And so, because the Bible was so prevalent and so, so, you know, it was so available at that time, you know, hundreds of years after the invention of the printing press, slaves were literate because of this, that enabled communication throughout the Underground Railroad. Um, The Underground Railroad was then propagated by person to person connection. Um, you could argue that the most censorship resistant thing is a person-to-person connection. Mm. Um, if if I have the ability to sneak out at night and to meet you, um, it's very difficult to censor that. You have to censor that with the utmost of prejudice, right? Meaning I throw you in jail and not just in jail because now I have cellmates or I have people that are in the cell next to me. You have to be in the worst of prison sentences in solitary confinement, right? So you have to go through all these steps to fully censor A person-to-person connection and so really because of local churches that were uh house churches that would welcome slaves in or would hide slaves you then had another node on the network that Uh slaves could run to they couldn't get all the way north but there was a there was a uh an abolitionist that lived maybe 20 miles south of the border that's going to get you close to the mason dixon line and then you're going to get the next leg up to freedom country Um, after that. Um, so each node was essentially one bit of the social layer
1: of people that were abolitionist sympathizers. Yeah, that's really interesting. So had, had we not had the printing press and Bibles were still super expensive, presumably slaves would have been less literate in general, right? The the masters couldn't or wouldn't have afforded, uh, them access to, to reading the Bible. Um, that's, that's an interesting connection. And then the small church paradigm that followed the Protestant Reformation, these functioned as nodes on the network of the underground railroad. So there's this, it's almost like an echo, right? That you wouldn't have had this larger step towards human liberation had you not had the first step, which was just the freedom of information from the printing press itself. Um, that's a really, really interesting way to look at it. I've thought too, about the. I wrote about this in Masters and Slaves of Money, but just the fact that a lot of the Underground Railroad, obviously they're moving north and didn't have GPS or, you know, even maps necessarily. Uh, Even if you had a map, like you're in the middle of the night, like it's hard to use. Basically moving towards the North Star, right, or using the stars to navigate northward. Uh, They also used um, moss. Certain types of moss would only grow on, I think, the north side of trees. So they would always, you know, basically find the tree that the moss was growing and they know that's pointing north and they're using these these things that are that are beyond human control as a means of navigation and I always thought that was a beautiful analogy like the the stars hanging in the sky that are immune to political affairs and human corruption right and it's something that no one could change no one could touch was like a guiding light towards freedom and Bitcoin by way of analogy is like something sort of similar, right? Like you can move towards this thing that no politics or human corruption can affect. And it's just pointing towards liberation. It's like just move towards yeah. Bitcoin and you can escape this financial tyranny that we all inhabit today called central banking. So that the idea yeah. of humans having, we need something that's beyond the reach of other humans, I think to point us in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's critical. It's so beautiful. I mean, yeah,
0: I, I hadn't considered that until you said it today. And it's it's one of those things where that resonates to the Bitcoiner because what who, what are you asking for when you're sending a Bitcoin transaction? You're not asking somebody to do something. Um, I've heard you say this before. Uh, you you said it's it's a faith it's faith in axioms. Uh, I've heard you use that term before. We we really only have faith in things that are apparently true, right? Like mathematics, like. Uh, how do you ever really know anything? You you kind of have faith in this thing that you've always seen work. Just works. That's and uh, mathematics is is free of bias, right? Cryptography is free of bias. And so uh, I could be the worst person in the world. I could be the most chased after person in the world. I could be the best person in the world that is running for righteous reasons. Mm. And I could, if I need money, if I need a financial resource, I can count on Bitcoin in order to you know help me or to to get me to freedom or to keep my freedom protest and my my freedom of free uh freedom of speech protest going for one more day so my truck can have gas to get to the next stop or whatever it happens to be. Um it's it's a, a no you didn't need to have a resource uh you didn't need to ask permission to use the North Star. You don't have to ask permission to use Bitcoin. It's uh it's almost like public infrastructure that yeah. isn't granted to you by government. It's a, it's a pretty interesting spin on on this. And I think that's why it confounds progressives because progressives like to use, uh, I don't want to make this a political thing, but progressives think that there needs to be something beyond us, uh, some sort of infrastructure beyond us to help balance human affairs. I think that's why um, Jason Mayer's book, A Progressive Case for Bitcoin, I, I hope that that takes root in the progressive and the Democrat community um, because I think that most more liberal leaning people think that yeah humans the individual shouldn't be counted on there should be something beyond us i agree with that i agree like i think that thing is bitcoin i don't think that thing is more people above us Mm -hmm. i think it's something that's beyond it's the north star it's bitcoin it's mathematics itself it's the universal laws of of nature um and that's i mean there's really almost if you think about it that way bitcoin it was most of us would say it's a discovery just like at some point The first person discovered the North Star. There was somebody somewhere in history that discovered the North Star, and now it just is. Now everybody knows about the North Star. Um, But there was a time when one person knew about the North Star, and that's that's where we're at with Bitcoin too.
1: Yeah, it's excellently said. Like math is totally free of bias, just like that starry sky, right, or that starry night. It's like there's no human bias, right? Wherever the star is, that's that's north, right? And it's the idea, right? It's an idea that obviously started with one person and had to spread, but once it spreads, that's it, right? It's just common knowledge and free public infrastructure, if you will, for everyone to use. Um, And in many ways, I don't know why, but what was coming up for me there is like, it sounds almost like an argument for God too, that just this idea that there's something beyond human control, beyond human comprehension, right? That um, we have to have a respect for or reverence for it. Otherwise you get into the, it's something like, uh, it inoculates you against totalitarianism, which is this idea of totalizing knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. This is the final plan. This is the utopia. This is the final solution, whatever it may be. If you have this faith in, in how I use the word God, I know it's a very loaded word, but this faith in that, which let's say the God just being the word for that, which is beyond words. You know, if you have faith in that reality, then you can discover things like this that are that are very useful. Whereas, if you yeah. think the totalitarian's given you all the the knowledge, then you're not going to look for anything outside of what the totalitarian's given you, and so you're you're you can fall prey to these delusions, right? You know, yeah. um, all the romantic lies that that totalitarians have used to control people.
0: Well, yeah, and and I know we'll get into this in a second, but the totalitarians they use. Technological revolutions to also state their points as well, and and we'll dive in this and maybe hopefully in, in a different manner. Um, but in the industrial revolution, uh, the rise of communism came out of this thing. Uh, I've heard it called before in philosophy circles called the eschaton, meaning that humanity thought we reached our highest form. And during the industrial, like by by today's standards, that sounds stupid, right? Like industrial revolution, there was so much more technology to come. But think about it from their standard the industrial age looked nothing like any other point of history. We never had things that weren't humans produce something. We never had something do something for us without a person doing it. Now one man could do the work of 10,000 men. So that lent it to itself to this idea of communism. Look at one guy can do the work of 10,000. Everybody can live in utopia You don't need to make money anymore because one guy or a few people can produce all the potatoes we need and they can produce all the shoes that we need. And so, yes, we can finally have the utopia. We'll give it to you as communists. will say, yes, we could have never had it before. But now because of this eschaton, the highest form of humanity, we can now do that. Now, the echo to today is we're seeing that with AI. We're seeing that with technology. AI is going to do all of our jobs for us. It's going to be humans won't be needed anymore we can finally usher in the true golden age of communism or totalitarianism and those types of things. And they'll say it with a genuine face and they actually believe it because they're right. This time is different than any other time in history. We are more advanced than any other time in history. But every time before, we also thought we were at the top point. That's where the arrogance comes in. Not just yes. that we're the most advanced version of humanity, but we're the ultimate form of humanity. Right. Um, and I think that's maybe the difference between, uh, you know, Bitcoiners. We we see this as part of the progress chart, rather than we we reached the final boss battle of the game and we beat the game and now we get to control everything
1: yeah that's a great point it's almost like a tower of babel type thing right (laughs) yeah we think we've built the tower to heaven and we're done but the reality is we're never done right we always we got to keep working advancing moving forward there's no there's no destination really right It's, it's just an infinite journey and um right yeah that's really good stuff now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor icoin technology icoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high res three inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. So you mentioned too the, the pro-democracy movements in the 1980s, and they're The ideas and the way they were spread, um, there's some parallels here maybe to Bitcoin that some of the art, the artwork that was used, I think you said it was like Banksy-esque artwork was used to sort of seed these ideas. Can you speak a little bit to that and how that parallels uh, Satoshi's creation?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that what was brilliant about the pro-democracy seeding and you could say where that came from. And we, we don't know where it came from. It could have come directly from the United States. It could have come from some other democracy, you know, whatever. It probably did to some degree. Um, but there was also people. There was also there was there was millions of people that wanted this at the same time. Um, but the pro-democracy movement in the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and in, in all the countries that broke off from the Soviet Union, so now there's Russia and all these other countries, which all used to be part of the Soviet Union, uh, those broke off because this idea was planted by anonymous sources. People would just post things in the street. They would post a poster or they would post something anonymously. The reason why they had to do it it anonymously was because they lived under an authoritarian or even a totalitarian regime where if they were known, they wouldn't just be made fun of, they would be killed, executed, or at the very least, they they would have total character assassination. They would be uh, deprived of, of any familial relationships or anything like that. So in order for the social movement to germinate, it had to be seeded with these ideas and these concepts. And, and yeah, it was like these Banksy-esque pictures or, or, or propaganda pieces. They were pro-democracy propaganda pieces that were laced in the street. And then at a certain point, you get this critical mass or you get this, this escape velocity of social movement. Now, enough people you're not going to be the first person out of the gate. We were talking about this off air in real estate or investing or in a social movement. You never want to be the first guy. Maybe you and I would, or maybe some, you know, there's some Bitcoiners out there that would, but the average person doesn't want to be the first guy because you're typically the one that gets shot, right? And it's the people behind you that get to bear all the fruit and things like that. Where a movement really has power is when somebody can step out and they know when they look to the right or their left, they're going to see one or two other people. They don't need to see everybody. Right. Um, there's some really good stats on this. I wish I could quote them precisely off the top of my head. Um, but you only need about, what is it, I think, 7% of a population that is unwavering on any given topic to change the other 93% of the population. Uh, one of the examples of this is that in uh, most London restaurants, they're their, their halal. Uh, which is like the kosher for for uh, for for Muslims, right? This is this strict dietary kind of conformity um, that food—it's uh, a standard of food so that Muslims can eat this food. Well, London's not a majority Muslim city; it's it's not. But there's an unwavering part of the population that will not eat food unless it is halal, and so the rest of society conforms. All those business owners in that free market. Want access to those customers, even though it's only a minority of their customers, they know that they will not get those customers unless they conform to that. So there's something powerful in people becoming unwavering, but you never get the social movement that's unwavering until it's seeded, until the ideas are planted out there. And so the pro democracy movement of the 80s in Eastern Europe was very similar to Bitcoin, like how Satoshi was this anonymous person. You can't character assassinate Satoshi
1: Nakamoto. Uh, that was very intentional from the inception. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, Taleb writes about that that phenomenon, which he calls the minority rule. And I think the numbers were like 4% of people eat halal, right? They're this, they will only eat halal, yet 96% of the meats produced in that area are halal because the other 96% of people don't actually have a strong preference. It's like, I could eat halal or not. So as long as the, the cost, of creating halal versus non-halal is close enough, there's so much efficiency to be gained by just making all of it halal. And then, you know, the the majority doesn't care. The minority really does care. So there's this dynamic where the the preferences of an intransigent minority can have outsized impact on the actual output, right? Of the actual result. Um, I think there's a lot of parallels there with, with Bitcoin too, right? If people just As Bitcoiners, we intransigently want to hold hard money. It kind of forces the hand of other people over time. It's like, they're just, they just want to store purchasing power, but it's like this small group of people figured it out and they're doing it better than you. Then eventually you just kind of have to conform. Um, I'm reminded too, that the Churchill quote on the whole East West or the, the the pro-democracy movements, Churchill said something like democracy is the worst form of government, except all of the others. And, you know, that was, maybe that was the idea that was being seeded because the Berlin Wall was built in the middle of Germany to keep East Germans from moving West, right? It was like you were imprisoning them in communism, essentially preventing them from moving towards democracy. And not that, you know, democracy has its own issues. If anyone wants to go read Democracy, the God that fell by Hoppe, he makes an argument that, you know, there's trade-offs to any form of statism, but democracy... And state capitalism is definitely better than communism. And so you saw people moving that direction. And, um, it's interesting to think that those ideas, it was those ideas. Again, the spread of those ideas, people knew that there was a brighter place out there, a brighter future potentially for them, such that they were willing to like scale this wall and risk life and limb just to escape, uh, a worse form of governance, which is, which is communism. And this idea of the whole, the anonymity, right? Feeding the decentralized movement because it's no longer, you're not pinning it to a person. It's not like people are following one guy necessarily. So when Satoshi disappears, what do Bitcoiners say? Like we are all Satoshi, right? It just becomes this idea that we all have versus we're all following this actual guy that, you know, someone could character assassinate, as you said, or denigrate or vilify, you know, you could just basically make him look like a schmuck and and really jeopardize the entire movement. Whereas if that movement is decentralized, where do you point the gun? Who do you character assassinate, right? It just doesn't work. So it's really fascinating to look at it that way. I think you said something about Spartacus too, that there might be a, a connection there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've, I've watched the
0: Spartacus movie or read, read the Spartacus play, uh, several times so I'm no Spartacus expert but the part that stands out to me as it relates to this uh, this point precisely is at the end of the movie so Spartacus, Spartacus was a, a gladiator that created an uprising within the Roman Empire he got all the other gladiators to rise up against the tyranny of Rome and so they become they they, they get defeated at the end it's a, it's a sad ending they're, they're defeated but the triumphant moment comes when they're surrounded and the Roman general he's never i mean think we think we we always know what our enemies look like we know what putin looks like or zelensky looks like or whatever they didn't know what spartacus looked like they didn't know who he was uh, um every all of the gladiator soldiers were these poor looking guys so the roman general said we only want spartacus we want to we want to crucify him and execute him to to stand as a symbol against uh uprisings and and you know any kind of resistance so just give us spartacus and we'll let the remaining hundreds of you go you can go home and you can even you can go free and uh one of his soldiers before you know spartacus is about to stand up and one of the soldiers before spartacus can even stand up he goes i'm spartacus and then one of his other soldiers stands up and says no i'm spartacus and then another one and another one and all the soldiers stand up and say we're spartacus and so what the roman general is faced with is either he can send hundreds or thousands of his men to die in order to annihilate the rest of this army, or he can walk away. And so Spartacus actually gets to walk away because his men stood up with him, right? Mm. If, if Bitcoin was just Michael Saylor out there doing the tour and he was sticking his neck out and there was nobody else in Bitcoin that the social component component was gone. There was just a rock star in Bitcoin character assassination. People would would try to uh, uh, hostile takeover micro strategy or whatever they could do to take this guy out. Enough power could, could uh, converge against somebody like that, no matter how rich or powerful they were themselves. But it's the fact that we're all willing to stick up uh, for one another and because we, we fight for a common purpose it actually makes everybody more resistant. It makes everybody more anti-fragile. Um, I competed in MMA. I compete in jujitsu still to this day. Um, and uh, one of the things that I found is I, I compete. Uh, it's a weird thing when you go out there and you fight another human being the first time you ever met them. You shake their hand. All right, let's do this. We go. And it's unlike any other interaction you have with anybody. And it's, it can be quite terrifying, right? Because we've all seen you know highlight reels of people getting knocked out or their leg broken or, you know, what terrible thing could happen there in the ring? And one of the things that I found, and I don't know if I heard this from a sports psychologist or where I heard it from, but they said, you need to make peace with the worst possible outcome. Mm. And in doing that, if you can make peace with the worst possible outcome, you will perform better. And therefore, the worst possible outcome is unlikely to happen. If I went into a fight tomorrow against uh, just a, a really strong UFC fighter, and I'm terrified I'm not going to be loose. My gas tank, I'm, I'm going to exhaust quickly. And now all of a sudden, I'm going to be vulnerable because I was panicking, was so worried about the worst possible outcome. I'm actually going to elicit the worst possible outcome because of the way I acted. Had I made peace with it and been okay, I would have actually performed better and protected myself from that worst possible outcome. So that same thing is true with the Bitcoin social layer. It it, it starts, we're, we're so lucky that Satoshi seeded it, so now we get to be that next wave of people that are out there championing on podcasts or books or whatever it happens to be at conferences and things like that. We get to be the ones where we're the we're the soldiers where that where some of them have already stood up and said they're Spartacus. So now it's also okay for us to stand up. And every ex, every person that comes and stands up makes Bitcoin exponentially more anti fragile. Makes every Bitcoiner more anti fragile. So. Yeah, what is, you know, when when you release a podcast, it's like what what's in it for you? It's like you're going to wake up more bitcoiners and that protects your bitcoin and protects your position. Um it also will then protect them. You know, so your incentives to have a better podcast with better content and winning over hearts and minds of more people. Yes, that's great. We know exactly where Robert stands. Like he is doing something that's in his own best interest even though you have reasons beyond that we know at the very least that robert if, as long as, as me as a bitcoiner robert i hope your this episode or uh, the next episode with somebody else on it gets to 10 million views because i know that me as a bitcoiner will be better off because of it that's how the bitcoin ecosystem works it's it's the antithesis to fiat fiat is the you you Top-down authoritarianism and the oppression of the the, the other the other side—it's a completely different paradigm through which uh, society runs, and so it's a it's a much more robust and beautiful version with Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, that's brilliantly said. I think every Spartacus that stands up, right, you're increasing the network effect non-linearly, right? Just like when you add a new node to the network. Metcalf's law, the value of the network goes up exponentially. It's the same thing, right? Every Spartacus that stands up makes the entire group exponentially more robust or anti-fragile. And it's beautiful how Bitcoin does that, right? It's aligning our selfishness or our self-interestedness with selflessness in a way. It's like, yeah, sure, I can put out a new podcast, wake up more hearts and minds that's good for me that's good for my bitcoin stash but hopefully it's also good for the collective right that you're actually waking people up to something that's more useful for them it's more beneficial in terms of preserving their life liberty and property so it's this great it's this beautiful alignment of incentives i guess and i don't see that in many other places in the world like as you said with fiat it's the opposite right it's like your my win has to come at your loss but bitcoin is is kind of an ultimate win win in many ways and on the the accepting Radical acceptance of the worst possible outcome. I think this is Musashi again. I'm not sure, but the the way of the warrior is the resolute acceptance of death. Like if you're going to move things in the world, then you just need to accept that, you know, life is short. You're going to die. That is the worst possible outcome. Just accept it radically and wholly. And then you're, then you're liberated, right? Then what, what is there to be afraid of? Like we're all going to the same place. So let's just make it meaningful, right? Mm -hmm. On, On the way there um beautiful really good stuff there um okay we should talk about the psychology of totalitarianism which is a book by Matthias Desmond he's been on this show he popularized the term mass formation psychosis I think they just call it mass formation now for short um which is something we've seen time and time again throughout human history right these demagogues coming into power and whipping people into a fervor of whatever the utopic vision is, whether it's fascism or communism. And, uh, you know, his book, I think really caught on during the COVID saga, because that's what we were going through, right? Another one of those, another mass formation of some kind. And so what this is kind of, I think you said offline, this is kind of like the flip side to the social movements, right? So the, the social movement would be these ideas. Catching fire, if you will, organically and leading to, to radical social change, but there's another there's a counter move to that, and that is the totalitarian trying to push their own ideology, I guess, into the group. Rather, you know, the the sort of counter to this organic movement, there's an there's an inorganic top down um, effort. So. What what is that like? What, what are your views on the psychology of totalitarianism? I think you mentioned too the importance of ritual to this mm-hmm. uh, to this dynamic.
0: Yeah, well, that for anybody that hasn't read his book, this psychology of totalitarianism. I mean, it, it's you got to read it. It, it. He does a fantastic job with with breaking this down, um, and he talks about the steps in which it happens, and so the more people that understand that, the more we can, again, become anti-fragile so that we can see the next set of steps. Now, Bitcoiners do this. I mean, this is kind of part of our ethos and we're always making ourselves more anti-fragile. We're always questioning the status quo. So that's the first thing you can do. That's what makes you so resistant is just questioning where a narrative's coming from. Um, But what you do is you create, you create, actually, sorry, I wrote it down because he said it comes in four steps. There's social isolation. There's lack of meaning in life. There's high levels, which, which leads to high levels of anxiety and then high levels of anxiety, uh, lead to frustration and aggression. Mm -hmm. And so you can elicit behavior by the time you get to stage four aggression or frustration leads to action. We saw that, right? We saw riots, we saw fires, we saw all sorts of things, but look at all the stuff that came before that. It was stay inside social isolation. Then the ritual came and you wore the mask so you can go outside, but be careful. Wear a mask. Put plexiglass up. I mean, how many ridiculous pieces of plexiglass did we see in just places that made absolutely no sense? It was a way for people to put a stamp on: we're part of this. It's it's all pieces of propaganda. We're like we were talking about the pro democracy movement and these Banksy type things being posted around. That's exactly what. The stickers were that said, "Please give six feet of distance between you and the person in front of you." That's a Banksy-esque type of propaganda done by the mass formation side of things. Um, I remember in my business, we have a we have a chain of wellness studios, and uh, I, I my, my marketing girl put up a sign right when COVID started and said, "Due to COVID, COVID was in all capitalized letters." We are we are doing X, Y, and Z. I said, "Take that sign down now." I, I, I told her I was like, I'm, "I'm very I'm I'm not a very firm boss." That was one time I was like take that down we will not have anything in our stores that has resembles that at all there's not gonna be a sticker anywhere anything guess what happened nobody actually got into other people's space like people naturally just stayed a little bit further apart they as humans they were able to do this on their own um when they were given this freedom to operate in the in the in the old way of things people acted in a civil and and very courteous way to one another um but Mass formation doesn't like that. If if a government agent, which they did, we had people from the county, they would come into my business and say, you need stickers here and you need this. I said, look it, you can come in and audit us at any time and look what what people are doing. First of all, they're coming into a wellness business. They're actually improving their health by doing this. But second of all, look at they're standing apart. Like they people know there's like this social decorum that you do now, and that wasn't good enough for the proponents of mass formation. They wanted the sign. They wanted the pieces of propaganda to ensure that even when I wasn't enforcing the message, something was informing the message. So you need to have a residual messaging going on at any given time. I mean, apparently the news and and social media and all that stuff wasn't enough messaging. You need physical reminders um, because the most damaging thing to the message was people connecting in real life. If people went to a store and connected, that was not good. If people went to their church and connected, that was not good. If people went on a date, that was not good for their message. So they knew that they couldn't keep people isolated forever. They just needed to make sure that when you did go out and connect in real life, you remembered who was your daddy. And you remembered that, um, that that you were supposed to be anxious. You, you, you would start to relax. You would start to enjoy the date with your wife or your girlfriend or whatever. But then you would look over and you'd see a guy with two masks on that serving you your food like that needed to serve as the reminder to keep the formation going. So anytime the social movement tried to get healthy, people tried to break out of the mass formation, they needed something to rein it back in. Um, and so what was ultimately the cure? It was information. And it was social connections. Those were the things that broke the mass formation.
1: Yeah, just like as we've said throughout this episode, right? That it's hard to censor that peer-to-peer interaction and information spreads through those channels, right? And so when when information's spreading, we're, we're figuring things out on our own. We're discovering truth. We don't need commands from on high necessarily. And you, I can't help but wonder the whole social isolation attempt, right? The top-down social distancing, as it was called, you know, again, consistent with everything we've talked about up until this point, well, that seems like a classic divide and conquer strategy, right? Keep people separated, keep people from interacting, keep people, keep information from spreading. It's, uh, it's sowing fear and divisiveness, like all the things that are resistant to top-down edicts, you're trying to uh, corrode or weaken or disintegrate somehow. And it's back to that point with Spartacus, right? Yeah. United we stand, divided we fall. So it's like... The, the top down apparatus needed us to be divided amongst ourselves so that we would we would comply right we would give in we would we would be controlled or controllable and i saw even yesterday you know there's talk now that i don't know if it's a new pandemic or a new covid mutate mutant variation whatever but this uh trending on twitter is do not comply like they're talking about the possibility of bringing mask mandates back and people are in it in advance of this just saying like absolutely fucking not like just do not comply with this bullshit. So I'm hopeful that we've learned. I know memories are short and um you know we we fall into these patterns historically but hopefully it's just been a few years and and people will be more resistant should this happen again. And you know th- th- there's always a romantic lie, right? There's always the, you know, so Marxists had the from each according to their ability to each according to their need, right? We don't need private property. We'll just all be in this brotherhood of man and we don't need markets. We don't need prices. We don't need any of that. We'll just love each other and I'll work hard and give you what you need and you do the same for me. And obviously that led to total, a total catastrophe, right? In terms of starvation, you know, mass murder, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we had a romantic lie this time around. It's like, nobody is safe until everybody is safe. It's like, that's simply not true. That's simply not true. There's no such thing as nobody is safe until everybody is safe. You know, it's always this utopic thing of like, we all need to come together and uh, create the utopia, but it comes at the betrayal of the individual, right? It's like, I'm going to take away your individual rights so we can improve the collective interest or the greater good. Mm -hmm. And so it's very useful i think to be a student of history in this regard that those this moral camouflage that the collective or let's say the top-down apparatus puts on is it's always a lie right it's always a deception so it seems very useful just to see that play out you know both in real time over the past few years and then see that it's happened historically as well um well if i if i could just
0: say, say one thing on that point i mean it the further my responsibility gets away from myself, the less effective I am. And that's true for anybody. So, so say if uh, I'm on the street and somebody comes up to me and tries to mug me, I, I, I'm pretty good at running. I could probably run away and get away. Or if I have to fight, I can, I can defend myself pretty well. But now let's look, let's imagine that I'm out on the street with my wife and my kids and an attack happens. Like, I don't have the option to run anymore. I can't run away with my kids and my family, right? And and, and fighting is, is going to be more difficult because I also have to protect them while I'm protecting myself. It's a lot easier just to protect myself than, you know, a wife and four kids and that sort of thing. So imagine now I'm responsible for eight people, 12 people, 100 people, a million people. The further my responsibility of protection gets away from myself, the less effective I'm going to be. That's true for government. That's true for for any person. And so the best form is when everybody takes care of themselves, then once we've gotten ourselves to higher ground, then we have the ability to allot resources and division of labor and those types of things to then protect the people because certainly not everybody can protect themselves, right? That, that's obvious, we understand that, but the best thing we can do is get to high ground. That's why you put the oxygen mask on in the yeah. plane before you help somebody else. You have to make sure that you're you're secure And then you can help somebody else. That's the that's the truly humanitarian view, rather than I'm going to kill myself trying to save everybody and then I get everybody else killed because I'm dead and I can't save anybody. Right. Like that's that's the lie that that authoritarians tell is that I can, I can, I can help all of you. I can save all of you. No, you can't. You can't even save yourself. You know, you're just yeah. So no, that's a great
1: that's a great point. And it's a hard physical reality, right? Like you are actually responsible for yourself in a very real way. You have to take care of yourself before you can take care of someone else. It's also when you they, when you save someone from drowning, you're supposed to approach them feet first, right? So they don't clock you in the head and you both drown. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's just reality. I don't know how else to say it. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay Server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay Server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin Privacy Wallet. Okay, you talked too about the, I guess these are social conformity experiments. You mentioned the Milgram experiments from 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk a little bit about that and how that uh, works into the rest of the, the theme of the conversation today? Yeah. Well, it, it's the tool of mass formation. It's not the tool. It's a study
0: of the tools of mass formation. Um, like we said, step one was social isolation. Why was social isolation so important? Yes, it le- leads to anxiety and all those other those other intended effects that they want, but they understand that people, when they don't have a person-to-person connection or any kind of um, social bond, people will do all sorts of really awful things to other people. So what the Milgram experiment is, and and probably many of your listeners have either heard of this or watched it before, but you can go online, type in Stanley Milgram experiment, 1963, I believe it was, like you said, and uh, you can watch it. They've recorded this. This is cool. It's in black and white. And the test subject is sitting in front of a, what looks like an electrical circuit board. And then an actor in the study, somebody that's in on it, is in the other room. They've never met. They haven't said anything to each other. They just know that they're supposed to perform this test. There's a guy in a lab coat that tells the test subject, okay, ask these questions. Every time he gets an answer wrong, you need to shock him. Now there's a dial. The dial kind of gives increasing shocks the further you go. On the far end of the dial, it shows like a guy with X'd out eyes, which would you know imply that it's going to kill the person. Sure enough, the guy gets, you know, asks a question. The guy gets an answer wrong. He shocks him. You hear an owl from the other room. So one, we we find out that people are willing to inflict pain on other people um, almost with no questions asked to a certain degree. Then once you get into the more severe ranges, you'll start to get people visibly uncomfortable. Um, it's shocking how long it takes for people to even get visibly uncomfortable. Then you get people that are willing to inflict pretty serious amounts of pain. I mean, the screams... They're fake screams, but they're coming from the other room and they're very severe screams. Like if your neighbor was screaming like that, you would call the police. Ow, 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 you know, very panicked scream. Like you're, you're doing something very damaging to this person. And then when people would start to ask questions, they would turn to the guy in the lab coat and they'd say, you know what? I don't feel comfortable with this. The guy in the lab coat would say, you signed up for this. You need to do this. We're counting on you to do this. He never said, hey, well, then you do it. He never said, I'm walking out of here. And this is repeated a repeated study. And something the vast majority of people in the study, I wish I had the exact number. It was something like 80 or 90% of people would continue on that dial. Now, like I said, at the end of the dial, it had what was implied to be a lethal shock. Most people would go up to the point of lethal shock on somebody that they've never met. And so you better believe that people at the WEF or the status quo, the powers that be in the world, they understand that level of, of human conformity. They understand that people will do atrocious things to other people because of this banality of evil, right? A guy in a lab coat told me that it's okay. It's my job to do it. Therefore, I'll do it. It's just my social job. I, they, they were maybe getting paid a little bit of money to come in for this experiment. It wasn't their career or it wasn't their passion in life or anything like that. They didn't work all their life to get to this moment to do that. No, it was just, I came in on a Tuesday afternoon and I was told to shock somebody. So I did it. That's a pretty disturbing reality. And it only happened because there was no face or name to go with the person on the other side of the wall. Mm. Think back to COVID, think mass formation. It was people without faces, without names, without identities, or if they did have an identity, it was the dangerous person. So maybe even... It is our duty to do something bad to them to report them to do those types of things um, certainly people will do pretty pretty mean things to, to one another if there's a lack of social
1: connectedness that's a, such a good point the whole idea of disconnection leading to the downfall of empathy right you like when you can't see look someone in the eyes right it's very easy to just have that loss of empathy I guess and then um, also when there' you know when there are movements, Think of like what hitler did to the jews right like he dehumanizes them first right he causes the um calls them you know scum right like disgusting scum we have to purge the scum we have to clean these you're dehumanizing them right and so and that seems to be necessary to justify the atrocity itself so even in this micro example of just putting a wall between people like you're dehumanizing them right you can't see them you can't look them in the eye so the empathy is 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 lacking and there's also this blind faith and authority, right? Or blind compliance that's interesting. It's like just because the guy's in a lab coat and, you know, he's sort of leveraging the agreement you made, like, oh, you signed up for this, that people will just kind of keep going all the way up to a lethal dose. I mean, it's very it's a very telling and kind of scary way to look at, at human nature. And I don't I hope Bitcoin It seems like Bitcoin gives you a healthy skepticism of authority, right? Just by encouraging you to take authority for yourself, right? And, and question things in general that I would like to think if you put some Bitcoiners in the Milgram experiments, they, their percentage rates would be much lower than 80 or 90%. I would hope so. I would hope so. (laughs) So, um, which maybe segues nicely into the, the final point here is like, you know, We've t- talked about technologies and how they interact with these different, various social movements. Bitcoin is one such movement, right? There is a technological layer, there's a protocol layer, but there's also this social layer built on it. And to simplify this somewhat, I guess you know you have the Bitcoin nodes that are selecting which rules they want to comply with, and then the mining, the miners are basically enforcing those rules. So that's the interplay between you know the The selecting nodes being a social layer and the miners being the protocol layer. Um, the question that I, for me, and this is a big one as it pertains to Bitcoin is like, to what extent do incentives actually influence general patterns of human action? Like how much can we change? Or I don't know if you're going to change, you're not going to change human nature, but you could positively influence or positively channel human nature. Just by swapping out an incentive structure you know, mm-hmm. moving from a fiat to a Bitcoin paradigm. So what are your thoughts on that? Like, what are your thoughts on on Bitcoin as I guess another example of a social movement fueled by technological change? And then to what extent can incentives cr- bring more peace and flourishing and cooperation into the world? Yeah, well, I'll start with the the second question.
0: First, the, the alignment of incentives. Um, and Bitcoiners, we look at this a bunch of different ways, but I was on a plane uh, not too long ago and I remember thinking, like, there's a hundred something people on the plane. And I'm sitting there, I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm like, man, there's a high degree of centralization in the authority of this plane. But <laughs> there's two pilots at the front of this thing, and there's a hundred some suckers in the back of this that are along for the ride. Now, people get nervous on planes and, and things like that, but you know, I, I wasn't nervous to fly a decent amount and stuff. And I was like, why, why? I'm flying in an Airbus, you know, thousands of feet in the air that we could die at any time for any reason. And, and you know, this pilot, could be a total, you know, nimcompoop, and just, or he could be suicidal, whatever. There could be all sorts of things that are wrong with these, these two pilots, but why am I really not that worried? It's because I want to get home to my family. And I believe the pilots probably want to get home to their family too. Um, I don't need to know anything beyond that. I think that our incentives are, are completely aligned. And so I, Bitcoin is trusting in your money. I, can i put my life in the hands of trust in aligned incentives i I think that's how high of a degree that we have of aligned incentives and and i hear people say you know um, i really fall in this vein of trying to evangelize bitcoin a lot and so i hear no coiners say well i i could just never trust an algorithm i get i get the alignment of incentives and things like that but i don't think i could trust in an algorithm i said you trust in algorithms all the time again with your life when was the last time you drove through an intersection You drove through 50 miles an hour, you didn't think at all about the trust you were placing in the algorithm that says when north and south have green lights and east and west, they're going to get red lights. But you just drove through the the intersection because it works. You trust in algorithms with more than just your money every single day. And it's really important to understand that mathematics, things that work, are beyond our need to that's where I would I would equate that that's how I would define trustlessness like Mm -hmm. you don't need to trust in it because like I quoted you earlier we have faith in axioms I I believe that if somebody put a gun to my head and they said if I write down one plus one what is that going to equal I will be confident that I'm not going to get shot in the head because I know one plus one equals two like I don't have to have faith beyond anything then something that is absolutely true and that absolutely works. And math and incentives will align and work every single time. And again, the the, the airplane analogy is even kind of flawed because humans have fallibility. Like mm. he could go against his own best interest. And like I said, he could be suicidal or he could be drunk or something like that. But the difference with Bitcoin is that there's not that element of human error or depravity or anything that comes along with, with human flawedness um or with human fallibility right and then going back to, to the first question about uh, this intersection of bitcoin and social change there is a mass awakening right, right now in the world especially in the west i don't know about in the east i don't i don't i don't know what's going on there but i have plenty of bitcoiner friends around the west that that uh that seem to echo this there's been an awakening that and i think that's why there's a, a resurgence of popularity in christianity um and working out and doing all these things that things that are good are hard but they're they produce good things so they're worth doing like this bitcoin message it's hard you're going to be in most circles you're going to be the person that is that is kind of like the the odd person out you're going to be the person that's always fighting the uphill battle for bitcoin because everybody else gets to take the status quo position and you have to be the the odd the odd looking one in that group um, an ice bath. Like, why do we do ice baths? Why do why does our body respond so well to an ice bath? Because it's difficult. Like God, I believe, has programmed into our DNA that things that are hard produce good results. The hard workout that you're gonna have this morning or that you had this morning, you're gonna have later tonight, or whatever. It's the tearing down and the building up of muscle is what produces good things. Um, the 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 Bible, I, I'm a big, big lover of the Bible. We talked about the Bible a lot today. Um, people think that it's just a, a bunch of rules that get you to heaven. No, that, that's not even the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that you've broken all these rules, therefore you should go to hell, but Jesus gave you grace, and is, now if you accept him, you're going to go to heaven. Like That's the message of the Bible, but then why should we even follow the rules in the Bible at all? We don't have to to get to heaven. It's because those rules are good, and if you abide by them, your life will be much more fruitful. If I treat my neighbor with respect and treat him as I treat myself, guess what? He's probably going to pay that forward. And then the community that my kids live in is going to be a much more fruitful community. So that's what we're seeing. Bitcoin is this device that all these people that are waking up to this idea that hard things are good, we have a tool at our disposal that that enables us to capitalize on this like we've never capitalized on it before. Um, Why was the Bitcoin community so resistant or so resilient to mass formation? One, because we question everything. Two, because... We came out of the 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 COVID closet faster than anybody else. We were the ones that didn't close our businesses or we were the ones that, you know, Bitcoin Miami was one of the first conferences anywhere uh, for any type of gathering in a mass scale, right? Bitcoiners broke the mass formation because they met, because we connected in person right across from each other. We broke the effects of the guy not seeing my face. And so therefore he'll shock me to death. Uh, it's hard to do that when you've put a name and a face and you've asked somebody how many kids they have and where they go to school or what, you know, those types of things, it's hard to do something truly awful to those types of people. Um, so I, I believe Bitcoin is a huge reason why the, the mass formation was broken.
1: Yeah, that's, man, a lot of good points there. And I'm reminded of Munger, right? Show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome uh, to the point of the pilot, right? Like you can just trust the self-interestedness of the pilot, which is probably the best. I think it's, ideally we all want certainty, right? It's the faith and axioms, one plus one equals two. Ideally, everything that I do in the world could have the certainty of one plus one equals two, but that's not the way the world works, right? We actually do need, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. We need to contend with it. And so absent that, the best thing we can do is to be able to trust someone's self-interestedness, right? Like the pilot wants to get home to his family just like i want to get home to my family so i can trust that he's going to pilot this thing well because his skin is in the game right our skin is in the game together uh i think taleb said something too like all the bad pilots are at the bottom of the ocean you know that's the reason planes don't crash that much because to, you know they get one and done kind of deal and we so we have to have this you know some degree of interpersonal trust but the and in ideal world, we minimize the interpersonal trust, right? That's almost like saying the same thing as minimizing corruption. You're not giving an individual the opportunity to exploit you, right? There's again, their skin is in the same game as yours. So the degree to which we can minimize, this is why trust is such a loaded word. Cause you have to dis- distinguish between, okay, trusting an individual, interpersonal trust, like I trust that you say, what you say you're going to do? You're going to do versus trusting one plus one equals two, which is something more like this axiomatic faith, we want as much as possible. We're going to move on the spectrum as much as possible towards the one plus one equals two, but we can't, right? We always have to trust one another. So the second best thing we can get is just trusting that that individual will do what's in their own self-interest. And so again, we're back to this, this Bitcoin thing is just incentivizing people to operate in their own individual self-interest is also what promotes the collective interest like it's a very beautiful schematic like i, I don't even, again i don't know that there's another example of this really you could say and and you know you brought up christ it's like it's a beautiful one right it's like we all act that way then the whole world actually gets better like we yeah. if we respect one another we treat one another as ourselves we don't tell lies we love god above all else which is you know again to make it a non theological thing, like just respect that there is God as the word for that, which is beyond words, right? There, there are limits to our knowledge. It's it's a humility, right? It's an adoption of, of a humble position or a humble orientation to the world. All of those things actually make your life better, right? Like you're able to learn there's more, uh, cooperation and reciprocation within communities. And there's more truth, right? Like we're, we're in a better uh relate we've got a better grip on reality i guess mm-hmm. by by following the ways of christ mm-hmm. so it's fascinating to me you know that i don't know bitcoin as being this like fundamental incentive system change could be like one of the ultimate peacemaking tools um who knows to what degree right like i guess before bitcoin christ was the ultimate peacemaker right just getting the west to adopt these ways of being, it's given us, there's a great book on this called Inventing the Individual, Mm. private property rights, right? That's not, we didn't even have a conception of the individual before Christ. So the the fact Mm. that you can go and open a bank account now in the West and it mostly works as long as you're not like a peacefully protesting above the the Northern border in Canada at the wrong time of year, (laughs) then your private property rights mostly work and that helps us uh, get on together nonviolently. And so, I don't know. I wonder to what extent Bitcoin can be an extension of that that end, you know? Just trying to create a world in which we all play by fair rules. And, you know, when the rules can't be bent, twisted, or broken, we sort of treat each other with a lot of respect, you know? That's, yeah. So.
0: Well, and if it helps people understand, like, oh, wow, the money when we play by rules, that makes life better. So then I adopt other moral systems, right? And, you know, we were talking about truth, you know, people, I, I genuinely think if, if I take a stance of, of always telling the truth, my life is going to be better off. There's going to be times where in the moment it, it kind of stings or whatever, because I might have to tell somebody an uncomfortable truth or something that gets me in trouble. But if I I genuinely believe that always telling the truth is a good, is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Now, the cool thing is, I believe that will catch on in society as people see the truth of things like Bitcoin. And so guess what? I, we As Bitcoiners, we never tr- we never trust in people's good nature. But the cool thing is people will have a better good nature because I can believe that when somebody else believes like me that truth is the best way to go, then more people will tell me the truth. It doesn't mean I always have to believe that, but I will live in a world where more people value truth. More people value truth. Um, more people value Value for value, right? Like people don't expect to get something without having paid for it or provided something for it, and so there's just a. I mean, again, I talk about my business in the fiat world. People are so used to just like getting stuff for free because businesses want your attention in this very Fiati mindset right. of you know people are like, what what can I get for free at your business? <laughs> it's like, like I've never had a bitcoiner ask me what they can get for free. I just right. it's just never happened. Right. Um I, I have readers of my book in in Africa that have very little money. And uh, they they say, Oh, I heard you have an ebook. Can I can I get a copy of the PDF? Um, let me send you something. I'll say, I'll send it to you for free. I want you, I want you to have this. No, let me send you some sats. Let me send you something. And it'll be something like two days worth of salary for that person. Um and it's something that's really substantial. Bitcoiners just operate and think in a different way. And that person, the cool thing is, I can be confident that when that person gets a copy of that book, they're probably going to read it because they've invested some something that's of material value to them. And so I'm not giving it to somebody that's just gonna throw it away or discard it. It's, I'm giving it or I'm selling it to somebody that's actually gonna use it and find value in it. So it it makes me, it's very rewarding to me as probably as it to you as
1: somebody that creates content. Yeah, it's excellently said. And again, it speaks to this. Like, what? Why are we so different? Like, we're just using a different tool, or embracing a different tool, embracing a different philosophy, perhaps. But it actually changes us, right? We, be, again, if humans are just carrying these ideas around and and enacting them, well, we just we. It's an update, right? It's a, it's an OS update to the to the human human mind, the human way, um, and it's really fascinating. Uh, Brian, man, this has been one heck of a conversation. I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. Um, I think people will find this very interesting and um yeah thank you thank you for doing this uh where can people find you on the internet
0: i'm most responsive on orange pill app um reach out to me on orange pill app if you guys are on there um i'm on twitter as well brian at brian Dement, um and then my book is on amazon or you can i'm selling it for bitcoin through orange pill app so if you want to pay in sats hit me up on orange pill app if you just want to buy it in fiat it's on amazon um, man, I appreciate you, you having me on, um, and just, you, you're very cool about just responding to messages and questions and stuff like that. I've been a long time viewer, listener of your show. Um, just your, your willingness to interact with people in the community and stuff is, is, is a really, really good example, man. So I, I really appreciate it and what you do for the community. Thank you
1: so much. Yeah. Um, I do my best. It's a lot of DMs. But I try to respond. <laughs> <Ben>. <laughs> uh yeah dude this is great uh excited for this on the air and we'll have to do it again sometime awesome brother